Find Matthew 9 in your Bible, if you will, please. I hope you will come Friday night to Elevate. Don't forget that. We'll be sending out some reminders this week. Uh, it's kind of a new worship experience for us on Friday evenings, and uh, every month we do one, and we'll have communion and worship together and, and share some stuff from the Word. So I hope that you'll be here tonight at 7 o'clock. We'll have a neat thing going for kids, uh, some learning opportunities for them as well. Matthew 9, we'll be there in a few minutes. We are all familiar with the thought that, that says the two things that you want to kind of avoid getting into discussions with people about our politics and religion. We've all heard that. You know, if you long, as long as we keep politics and religion out of the equation, we can get along well. And why is that? And I think the reason is, is because our beliefs, whether they are political or spiritual, are deeply centered. They are deeply held. You watch the debates that have been on television and, and, and you watch on, on the news channels on TV, the talking heads argue. You watch C-SPAN, if you can stand it, you know, and, and, uh, and better yet, you ever flip through and, and come up on the British Parliament when they're on TV? Now that's entertainment right there, you know. But you watch these people and they get into the politics especially and they get, they get really passionate. We might say about those people, they really have their heart into what they have to say, into what they think and what they believe. They believe that with all their hearts. In fact, most of us, all of us, I think, I think it's true, all of us, do things, say things, because they are deeply within our hearts. Now, the Bible says a lot about our hearts and the influence, the impact our hearts and what, what's in our hearts has on how we live and what we say. For example, let me give you some examples of just what the Bible says. The Bible tells us prayer originates in our hearts. Defiance of God is due, the scripture says, to a hard heart. Remember Pharaoh? His heart was hardened, it says, over and over and over again. Passion to seek after and follow Christ starts in our hearts. We're told to love God with all our hearts. Our hearts, the Bible tells us, can deceive and can be deceived. Our hearts can be turned to God and our hearts can turn, our, turn us away from God. We can lose heart or we can be encouraged in our hearts. It's from our hearts that we either worship God or we worship idols. We all worship someone or something that comes from our hearts. Faithfulness and faithlessness are found in our hearts. And our hearts, the Bible tells us, can be changed for good or for bad. Those are some of the things. That's just a little bit of what the Bible says about your heart and the role that it plays in your life. It's a big role, would you say? If you look at that list and say, man, that's a lot of stuff that my heart has control over in my life. The story in Matthew 9, the story is Jesus' story in our series, finds him in the first of what would be many confrontations with the religious leaders and the experts of his day. And we're gonna, what we're going to see today, and really over the next few Sundays in this series, as we spend a lot of time in Matthew 9, we're going to see that we all, what we all, all, the, all that we need to do and what no other person can do for us is this. Jot this down in your notes. Guard and evaluate what's in my heart. Guard and evaluate what's in my heart. Follow with me. 
Matthew chapter 9, while I read, starting in verse 1, go down through verse 8. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. And then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Be encouraged. Good news for you today. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the scribes said, within themselves, means they thought this. You ever say something within yourself? I hope you do. (laughs) I hope you think every now and then. They thought, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. And now... When the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Mark and Luke are parallel gospels to Matthew. We call them the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they, synoptic is, is a, a compound word that means they look alike. All right, like, you know what a synonym is? Can, Larry, can you turn me down just a little bit? I'm bouncing all over my head here. Thank you. That's good. Synonym means alike, and optic means to see. Synoptic Gospels, they tell the same, essentially the same stories. John focuses a little bit more on some different things that happened in Jesus' life. And, and, and Luke and, uh, and, and Mark share this story in their accounts of Jesus' life. Maybe you thought, isn't this the story where the, the, story where the friends brought the paralyzed man and, and they went to the extremes of moving, removing the tiles from the roof of the house, and they lowered him down through the roof to Jesus where he was teaching in the house. And isn't this the same story? And the answer is yes, it is. They give more details than Matthew does. Now, you remember from last week that the scribes, and they're mentioned here in verse 3, they're the ones that thought within themselves, this man blasphemes. We talked about the scribes, and we said the scribes were the experts in the Old Testament. Although they believed that God would send Messiah, they did not accept that Jesus was the Messiah, much less the Son of God. Messiah, in their minds, Messiah is going to be royalty. Messiah is going to live in a palace. Messiah is going to be king. He's going to be great. He's going to be pompous. He's not going to be what this guy is, coming from a no-account town in Galilee called Nazareth from a poor and working class family, how could, he's uneducated. How could he be Messiah? Unlike them, Jesus had no formal training. He had no law degree. And in their minds, he was terribly unqualified to teach about God. Yet here he was, and he's drawing these huge crowds wherever he goes, and they come to hear him to find out what about this man is getting the attention of our whole nation. Luke, in chapter 5, verse 17, gives a great insight as to who was there in this story and the draw that Jesus had. Luke writes, One day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law, those are the scribes, were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee 
up north and all Judea down to the south, as well as from Jerusalem, the capital city, the center of their, of their nation and their religion and the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. So from what Luke says, we, we know several things. First of all, it was likely that other people were healed that day. His healing power was strongly with him. Uh, there were probably other healings taking place. It also tells us, as I mentioned last week, that the Pharisees and the scribes, Luke mentions that they're both there. And some had come all the way from Jerusalem. Now that's a 70-mile walk. I mean, they didn't have trains and planes and automobiles. That's a 70-mile trip. If you walked it, it took you four days of walking. And they had gone that distance, traveled that far, because they were curious. They wanted to check up on this Jesus. But this one act of healing of this man who was paralyzed is the one, even though there might have been others in this scenario, in this context that happened that very day, it's this one that God chose to include in the Scriptures because it so obviously brought out Jesus' power and glorified him as God. Something interesting about this, this story, you know, that here they are, Jesus is in this house, and there's all this crowd, and, and you wonder why were there so many people. Well, Jewish custom of the day is very different from ours. You know, if you want to invite some folks over to your house, well, let's come on over and have a get-together. You make some phone calls, or maybe you even send out invitations for a party or something like that, and you have a list of who you want invited to come to your thing. Jewish cultural custom of their day was for uninvited guests to come and fill up the house. I mean, if if word got out in the neighborhood, you were having a cookout, the neighborhood showed up. Whether you had invited them personally or intentionally or not, they were there. That was their custom. It was no, you know, no invitation, bless you, no big deal. It was kind of a free-for-all, first-come, first-to-get-a-seat, standing-room only kind of thing that's happening here in this house. And likely those who could not get into the house were crowded outside around the house trying to look and peer in the mirrors and the doors to get a look and hope, hope, hoping maybe they could see him, but at least if they could not see him, they could hear him. They wanted to be near Jesus and see what he was all about. This man's friends, Mark tells us in his gospel, there were four of them that put him on a stretcher and carried him to the house. So I want you to, to get this. This is kind of a little sidetrack from where we're going today, but I think this is important in this story, important practical application for you and for me. His friend's only motive was to bring their needy friend into the presence of Jesus. Did you get that? Their only motive, why did they carry this man? Why did they go up the steps? Why did they pull back the roof? Why did they put the ropes on the stretcher and lower him down? Why did they go to this extreme? It was very simply because they wanted to get their friend in the presence of Jesus Christ. You know, the crowd, had it been your friend, had it been my friend, some of us would have been discouraged that day had we said, you know what, Jesus is in town today. Let's take our friend to Jesus. And we would have loaded him up on the stretcher. And then when we got there, we might have said, you know what, there's no way. Look at how there's, it's impossible to get close to the house. He's in the middle of the house. And, and I mean, they're bulging out the doors and the windows. There's no way. Too many people, no room. Maybe we can try again tomorrow. A lot of us would have been discouraged. But these men were not. What they did, however, was highly or unorthodox. Here's what they did. You know what they did? We can, we can 
Put it in these words. Jot this down somewhere in your notes. They did whatever it took to get their friends to Jesus. They weren't about to let a crowd keep them away and keep their friend away from getting to Jesus. They did whatever it took. Let me ask you a question. Do you have that kind of passion for your friends who need to be in the presence of Jesus Christ? Do you really? Do I? Here's how, here's how I might answer that question. How many friends are with me this morning who don't know him? How many friends have I had a conversation with at work, at school, in my neighborhood, recently, people that, far as I know, they don't know Jesus, how, how concerned am I about their need to, to meet Jesus Christ, that I've gone to whatever it takes to introduce them to him? Have, have I done that? These guys were not discouraged. They did whatever it took. That's a sign, I believe, of genuine faith at work, because faith is not easily discouraged. And you think about this. Who'd ever seen anything happen like this before? Have you? You ever been, you know, somewhere and all of a sudden the roof opens up and somebody comes down? I mean, that's kind of like, I guess, a first. One of the signs, I believe, that we're slipping into religion as Christians is when we sit and we hear Jesus' words, as we're doing this morning. Um, as, as, a, as a group of our men did this weekend, Friday night and Saturday at our, our men's conference, uh, as we do in our, our connection groups. We sit and we hear Jesus' words, and yet there is no change in us. That's a sign we're slipping in the religion. The anti-religious people in this story, do you know who they were? They were these four buddies of this man, these four friends who may not have known a lot about Jesus themselves, but all they knew was we've got to get our friend to him. It was their faith, even though it may not have been huge, even though it may not have been in in tremendous depth about who Jesus is. They might, might not have known all the theology. didn't matter. Their faith moved them to take this man to Jesus, and their faith moved Jesus. How often has this scenario played itself out in you and me in the cycle of our lives as believers? You know, when we, when we become believers in Jesus, when we have that new birth experience, it changes us in ways that maybe we never expected. And we, and we realize quickly how good those changes are because old desires that were not good for us are being suddenly removed and taken away from us by God's Holy Spirit as he changes us into Christ's likeness. And and it's exciting as we begin to see God working in us, and it's all good, and we're so excited. In fact, we're so excited, we begin to tell our friends about this newfound faith that we have, especially our non-believing friends, because we want them to have the same faith. But as we grow older, the excitement and the passion, somehow, for some reason, for bringing others to Jesus begins to subside and we become comfy in our new friendships in the church. We become comfy with our circle of friends and our connection groups and our Bible studies. And before we know it, I can't remember the last time I sat down with a non-believer and shared the gospel, told them my own personal faith story can't remember the last time I encouraged a friend to accept Christ. I can't, man, it's been a while since the last time I invited a non 
Christian, a non-believer, an unchurched person to come with me to church one Sunday and see what it's all about. For some reason, it seems that newborn believers are free to follow Christ more than those of us with some years of Christianity under our belts. I don't know that I get that. I believe there is no Christian who is more religious, and I'm saying that in a negative connotation, remember, in the series. Religion is man-centered, man-made ways to try to get God's approval of me. I don't believe there's any Christian who becomes more religious than those of us who have, over time, lost that passion and replaced it with something else. Jesus' first response to the man's need as this pan has brought and lowered down before him, his first response was to do what? Forgive his sins. That's the first thing Jesus thought of as the man's brought me. I'm going to forgive this guy's sins. Why? Well, think about it with me. Not everyone, you know, not everyone in this room, not everyone in this world, not everyone needs physical healing of some kind. I mean, not everyone is ill. Not everyone has some kind of handicap. Not everyone does, but, and so not everyone receives physical healing from the Lord, but you know what everyone is? A sinner. All of us have that need, don't we? I mean, that makes us all equal here this morning. We're all in that same boat, and it's sinking, and Jesus looks at all of us, and he knows that we are, and forgiveness, he knows that forgiveness from our sin is our greatest need, even if we don't recognize it. And we don't know what sins this man had committed. Some people wonder, what? I wonder what he did to get in this condition. I don't know that he did anything to get in this condition. Maybe so, but I don't know that. But I don't know what sins he had committed. But really, it doesn't matter. I, I don't know what sins you've committed in your life. You don't know what I've done in my life. That's not the big deal. What matters is, has Jesus Christ forgiven you, forgiven me of our sins? What matters is that he and his friends believe that Jesus could take care of him. And the first thing on Jesus' mind is, I'm going to forgive your sins. And this upset the religious leader, the, the scribes, the Pharisees who were there. And what upset them was that Jesus said, very simply, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, they didn't express it out loud, but it was what they were thinking. In fact, in their minds, they were accusing Jesus of blasphemy. Verse 3, this man blasphemes is what they were thinking. Blasphemy was a serious charge. Maybe you're not sure what, what is blasphemy. Blasphemy is an attitude of disrespect that finds its expression in an act directed against the character of God. It's something we say, something that we do, that impugns the character of God, that charges God with things that God did not do, that says that somehow God is capable of doing evil, that God's done something wrong. That's blasphemy. So it could be that claiming, claiming God did something wrong or something evil. It could also be claiming to be God when you are not. Their law... Remember, the scribes are experts in the law, the law being the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, especially there in Leviticus and some in Exodus and so forth. 
Their law said that the penalty for blasphemy was to be stoned to death. Somebody blasphemes, you execute him. Leviticus 24, 15, and 16 says, if anyone curses his God, he will bear the consequences of his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The whole community must stone him. If he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death. That was their law. And they were thinking blasphemy here because Jesus was claiming to do for this man what they knew only God can do, and that's forgive sins. They knew the scriptures. They knew the Old Testament said only God could do that. They knew Isaiah 43, verse 25, where God says, It is I who sweep away your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. They knew Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant overlooking the sins of his special people? And here Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven. And their minds say, only God can do that. You're a blasphemer. See, they... These scribes and Pharisees did not know who Jesus was. He did not fit into their concept of God. So knowing what they were thinking, Jesus has that capability to read our minds, if you will. Knowing what they were thinking, he asked them a question. Here's the next point in our notes here. Religion sees Jesus as less than he is. Religion sees Jesus as being less. He's a good teacher. He's a prophet. Well, yeah, he was a good teacher. Yes, he was a prophet, but people will stop there. You know? They don't want to get to the point where they say, and he was the son of God. He is God in the human flesh. Religion sees God, Jesus as less than he is. And Jesus asked them a question. He says, okay, guys, let's talk about this for a second. That was the rabbinical way of teaching, was to ask questions back to people. Let me ask you a question. Which is, do you think it's easier to do? To say, your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk, pick up your bed and go home? What do you think is easier, to forgive somebody's sins or to heal somebody who's paralyzed, quadriplegic? What do you think is easier? Now, the answer would be, you know, the answer is very simple. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven, isn't it? Because that, that can't be disproved by anybody. Nobody can see that happening. We can't see sins being forgiven because that's an invisible kind of, it's a spiritual thing. Forgiveness is a spiritual action, not a physical one. But we can see the physical. It would be harder to say to this man that was paralyzed, and everybody in town knew he was, rise up and walk, and him get up and walk away, that would be harder in their minds. So to show them that he was able to forgive sins, which again, something that only God can do, he did something that they could see. He healed the man. Something only God can do. By the way, it's then that you clearly see this man's faith. A lot, of times, a lot of times preachers will talk about the faith of the four friends that brought him, and they don't say anything about this man. This is when you see very clearly this man was a man of faith. 
Because it didn't happen this way. Jesus didn't say, pick up your bed and walk. And the response he got back was, what? I can't do that. I'm paralyzed. Are you crazy? Somebody tell him what's wrong with me. He's asking me to get up and walk. He didn't respond that way, did he? Jesus said, pick up your bed and walk. And what did the guy do? He believed Jesus, didn't he? And he picked up his bed and walked away, went home. He expressed what? Faith. He showed his faith was real, that his faith was in, in, that was in his heart was coming out in his actions. Jesus said it, and in this man's mind it was so, and he got up and walked. Jesus pronounced this man's sins is forgiven because of his faith. And this was before the cross, by the way. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, we, we, we sing and we talk about, we believe it's in the scripture, that it's on the cross where Christ forgave our sins, that it's shed blood provided forgiveness for our sins. Without the shedding of blood, the scripture says, there is no forgiveness, remission of sin. This was before the cross. When Jesus would die for our sin and make it possible and for sin to be forgiven, for its penalty to be removed. But Jesus told this man his sins were forgiven now. He didn't say, and when I die on the cross one day in the near future, your sins will be forgiven. He said to this man, what? Your sins, what? Are forgiven. Before the cross, why? Simply because just like Abraham and the Old Testament saints, Abraham believed God, Romans says, and it was counted to him for righteousness. How did Abraham become a believer? By believing in Jesus Christ that he did not even know, but he knew God was going to provide Christ. This man believed in Jesus, and at the moment he believed his sins were forgiven. And the Pharisees and the scribes, we're sitting there watching and listening to all this. This is an eye-opening experience for them. They admitted they had never seen anything like this before. To them, this was something brand new, which tells us something else about religion. This was deniable. What does it tell us about religion, by the way? Religion doesn't like to stray far from traditions. This is something brand new. Never seen it like this before. I remember the first Sunday I came to this church as, as pastor back in 1991. And I gathered the two old fellows who were deacons. They were both in their 80s. And the church had always done their order of service the same way, you know, sang a couple hymns, you know, took the offering, sang another hymn, preached a sermon, and so forth. And they'd always done that. And I got these two guys together and I said, today we're going to take the offering up at the end of the service. And I remember the one old guy, uh, he, I, I, I can remember exactly what he said. He said, I ain't never heard of that before. <laughs> I said, you know, the Bible doesn't say that we have to do it at the front, at the back, at the middle. It just says we need to be able to give. I said, so we're going to do it at the end today. They never heard of that before. That was something new. Or thinking they walked away shaking their heads. This boy is crazy. Religion doesn't like to stray far from, uh, from traditions. Now, all of us are naturally more comfortable with what's familiar, aren't we? We all are. I mean, that's part of our human nature. 
get that again. That's part of our human nature. And our human nature, somebody tell me, our human nature is what? It's fallen. All right? That's part of our human nature to be comfortable with what's familiar. Let me illustrate it this morning to you. Now, we have some guests with us, so I'm not picking on, well, I'll pick on you a little bit too. You, I'll lump you in with everybody else because most of you, if you come to church when you're on vacation, you go to church when you're not, okay? How many of you tend to sit in pretty much the same spot, close to the same spot in church every Sunday? Raise your hand. Look at all the tradition. Look at all of them. Keep your hand up. You fallen people. What's up with that? You know what's up with that? It's familiarity. I love it when people mess, mess with my minds. And they've been sitting over there for a long time, and I'll all of a sudden look and see them over here. I was like, all right, what are you trying to do? You know? And it becomes familiarity becomes my tradition. So when we see something done, as these people did, done in a new or even radical way to bring people into the presence of Jesus, what these guys did, these four men, when we see something done in a new or radical, different way than what we're familiar with and what is our tradition, if we are religious, we will resist it. Matthew says that the crowd was awestruck. Here in the New King James that I read this morning, it says they marveled. Mark uses a word that literally means here, describing their reaction at at what Jesus did. The word Mark uses is a word that literally means they were out of their minds with amazement. It's the same word that the word phobia comes from. Luke's word, he uses a different word altogether. His word says that there was a reverential reverential fear that swept over the crowd. These scribes were like those Paul described would be around in the last days before Christ returns. Look at 2 Timothy 3, verse 5 with me. Paul writes about the last days and about the religious people. He said they will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. So many of you were raised in very religious churches. And you grew up in that, but you never experienced the power of Christ until you left that religion and found Jesus. See, religion doesn't make me godly. God makes me godly. Verse 4, Jesus made it very plain that their objections, the fact that they refused to believe Jesus could forgive sins. He said, you know what that's due to? You know why you're objecting? You religious guys, it's because you're thinking evil in your hearts. In the Bible, heart refers to our minds and tells us that what's in our hearts determines how we live. We saw that list at the very beginning this morning. What's in our hearts can be good or bad. And so one thing I learned from the story this morning is this. The difference between following Christ and being religious has to do with a change of heart. 
Our hearts need to be changed. That's the start. That's the base. That's the beginning of it all. It starts with a change of heart. Now, some people would say, okay, does that mean like being open-minded? Should I open my mind to everything and anything? And the answer of that is, of course not. People who claim to be open-minded, I'm just open-minded about everything. You know, they're allowing themselves to be influenced by both truths and lies, by good and evil. So let me kind of wrap up this morning. We're talking about how do I protect my mind from evil religious thoughts? That's what I need to do. I need to protect my heart, my mind, from evil religious thoughts like these men had. Proverbs Chapter 4, verses 23 to 27 is a great, great passage of Scripture. I hope you'll go back and look at it. And it tells us how, I, how, how can I keep my, my, my heart from being deceived? How can I keep from believing what is false? Listen to the words from the Proverbs. Proverbs 4. Guard your heart above everything else. What is he saying? You know what ought to be top on your list every day as you go through life? Protecting your heart heart, your, your, your mind, your thinking, what goes in. Guard your heart. Above. Why? Why should I make that at the top? It's, it says, for it determines the course of your life. Above all, or it says, then it says, avoid all, excuse me, avoid all perverse talk. Stay away from corrupt speech. Look straight ahead. In other words, don't be distracted. And fix your eyes on what lies before you. You ever follow somebody around somebody driving down the highway who's driving a car and they're looking this way and they're looking that way, you know? Or they're, they're looking in the mirror doing their makeup, you know? Or they're texting somebody. That's scary, isn't it? Why? Because when you drive, where do you need to be looking? You need to be looking where you're going. See how relevant the Bible is to your life every day? It even tells us how to drive our cars. Look straight ahead. Fix your eyes on what lies before you. Make a straight path for your feet. Stay on a safe path. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your feet from following evil. So here's some practical things for you. How do I keep my heart from evil thoughts? Number one, dump the trash regularly. Right? What happens when the kitchen garbage can hasn't been emptied in a while? Somebody tell me. Good word. It stinks. Yes, it does. The kitchen stinks. What happens on your computer when your hard drive gets full of junk? It slows way down. And so what do you do? You go on the utilities or whatever and you punch some buttons and tell it, clean this mess up. Get rid of this stuff. Well, I'm talking about computers, by the way. There is no trashier environment when it comes to religious stuff than the Internet. Be careful not to get sucked into it. Dump the trash regularly. We, we, we accumulate trash in our lives every day. It comes in here, and it comes in here primarily. Dump the trash. Uh, 
John says it this way, 1 John 1, 9. Confess your sins. All right? Dump the trash regularly. Secondly, if I'm going to dump the trash, what do I need to do? I need to fill my mind with the right stuff. Paul writes in, to the Philippians about, he says, he gives a list and he says, think on these things, whatsoever things are lovely and pure and just. And he gives this list. Fill your mind with the right stuff. Be careful what you watch. Be careful what and who you listen to. Some of you know, and you're going to go to work tomorrow, and there's that person that works in the same place you do, and you talk about Mr. Negativity. You talk about Miss Gossip, Sister Flapjaws. You know, all day long, it's, it's going to be, you know, and, and I don't want to hear it. I sit around this person all day long, and when I go home, I'm just hating life because my mind has been filled with garbage. Fill your mind with the right stuff. There is so much out there in the world that is perverse talk. Number three, give control to the Holy Spirit. How do I do that? Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine because when you're drunk with wine, wine has control of your life, of your way you think and how you act and where you go. Don't be drunk with wine. He said, be, instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. How do I do that? It's, it's not really complicated. You do number one, you dump the trash. You number two, you say, okay, I'm going to fill my mind with the right stuff. And that begins, Lord, with giving my control of my life to you. And I turn control of my life over to him. I, I let him fill my life with his power and his ability to keep my heart clean because he can, he will. Give him control. Number four, learn to be biblically discerning. Learn to be biblically discerning. What do I mean by that? A lot of gullible people in this world. Okay. Oh my goodness, if you're on Facebook last week, how many of you got posts from somebody that copied and pasted, it was in all capital words about, now Facebook is going to start charging you money to do faith. And I saw that, I said, you stupid people. <laughs> and I tried not to say that back to them, and I said, go to Snopes.com and check this stuff out. Be discerning about, you know, my friend said it, so it must be true. Really? All that glitters is not gold. You need to get grounded in the Word of God. You need, listen to me, I'm going to talk about this in a moment. You need to take Sam Knight's class that starts next Sunday night on how to get the most out of your Bible. Because in that class, he's going to teach you how to use, your, how to use the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, how to read and study the Bible. Be one of the greatest things that you ever do if you take that class. Because we all need to be able to identify truth from error. I often remind my friends on Facebook and those who forward those emails to me, check out these rumors before you start spreading them. Don't believe everything that you read or hear. Don't be gullible. Learn to be biblically discerning. Let me ask you, how's your heart? Are you trapped by religion like these scribes and Pharisees were? Are you listening to so-called godly people who have taken away your joy and made you a skeptic of who Christ is? Have you allowed the evil of this world to dominate your thinking? A changed heart, a renewed heart, 
begins when we accept that Jesus is who he is, who he said he was, who he proved he was, that he is the Son of God, and that in Jesus, as this man found out, as he was lowered before him, in Jesus we have everything we need. All wrapped up in a person, Jesus Christ. Right now, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you need a heart transformation, and you need to believe in Jesus as God's Son, let me encourage you right this moment, would you put your total faith in Him? Would you acknowledge that He is the Savior and that you are a sinner who needs Him? That's all that it takes is faith, belief. And when you do, He comes into your life, the Scripture says, and He comes in to change everything. You do that right this moment. So I've already done that, Rick, but I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in Jesus, but truth is my heart needs renewing. A lot of garbage in my heart right now that's been accumulating. Well, right now, dump the garbage. Right now, ask him to fill you instead with his spirit. Father, as the psalmist prayed, I simply prayed this morning, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me.